Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Matters. Uh, on today's show, we're going to break down our conception of the universe. It's no small <laughs> task, really. Well, we're going to do it. But we're going to do it. We're, we're going to do it in an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, but, you know, most of human history is characterized by just competing different worldviews about the cosmos, how it came to be, how it, why it exists, you know, how animals came to possess their particular characteristics, how people came to possess our, our own uh, peculiar uh, characteristics, why there is life, and what role, what role there is to having a mind or having, you know, physical characteristics. So on today's show, we're going to just kind of break it all down and, and look at it in a really philosophical and abstract way and kind of weigh out what it is, what it means to live in the universe that we live in. Just what does it mean to have material <laughs> bodies, to have a mind? What, is, what should the center of gravity be in our you know, philosophical outlook? Should we put emphasis on matter and science, the scientific materialism, or should we place emphasis on mind? And if we do, there's a number of different ways of conceptualizing how mind came to exist in the cosmos. Is mind the ultimate absolute existence? Everything exists within a, uh, an ultimate mind? Or did mind come to exist in terms of just the you know, absolute physical uh, substrate? Mm. You know, it, it has consciousness and then in some you know, bizarre way happened to evolve into you know, more and more grand schemes of, of consciousness and existence. Mm -hmm. So today on today's show, that's what we're going to tackle. Well, the, I want to read something to start out with. This is from the book, um, The Idea of the World by Bernardo Castrop. Uh, we talked a bit um, about Castrop's work in a couple previous shows based on some articles that he wrote, but um, we've been reading the book um, lately to get more in depth into his, his ideas and his argument. And right, at the, right in one of the first chapters, I just want to read a short paragraph um, to kind of lay the ground on why, why it's important and kind of go on, go on from there. So he writes... While advances in technology, enabled by the predictive models of science, have influenced early 21st century culture more than anything else, questions of ontology loom large in the contemporary psyche. What is the nature of reality? What is the essence of phenomenal consciousness, and how does it relate to matter? Our tentative answers to these questions color, if not outright determine, our views of life's meaning thereby underlying every aspect of our existence. So that's really why, why it's important, um, because the, the beliefs we have about the nature of the world will influence our, our decisions, our actions, and our character, um, because that, that's what kind of sets, sets the vision and the ideal of the, of the meaning of life in, you know, in our psyches. This relates back to, you know, topics we've covered on multiple previous shows, even just the last one, you know, where we we're talking about like belief in God, where we uh, looked at Jordan Peterson's answer to that and basically like what belief entails. Well, if you keep in mind what we talked about last week about the nature of belief and how belief does, um, it, belief is like inextricably intertwined with our actions and with what, what we actually do. Well, we're going to have to get uh, a good handle on what we actually, actually believe then because 
Um, and we might we, we can look at it from two directions too. Like we can look at our actions and how our actions suggest a deeper belief, or we can look at we can analyze the beliefs directly or try our best to, and then see what um, you know what those beliefs entail <clears throat> and how that would play out. So um, the like the options. Well, like you said, there are several options, and there's a whole history of worldviews and ways of looking at the world and thinking about it. And um, like Castro mentions here about the the like the predictive power of science and the and technology, that's really what's dominating the the worldview today, um, I think. And that that's rooted, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in like the history of thought for like the past three hundred years. Like we're living in, uh, well, every, no matter what. Time you look at, like in all of history, you're going to have an, an entire history before that that has shaped and conditioned the worldview of that time. So our time is no different. But there have been several, um, several important, um, like uh, several important, like things that were introduced into the the like the thought world of humanity, um, particularly particular in like w Western Europe and like the English speaking world, but uh, you know in Germany, I Italy, France. Um, the all of Western Europe and the the thought the like the collective thought of all those interactions and groups that have basically uh, played a, an integral role in forming the way that we think today, even if we're not aware of it. Just like if you go even further, um, like the Bible, the Bible has been the probably the most influential book on like Western consciousness, even for people who have never read it. They're they're still influenced because the the like those thought patterns and the and the like, the values and maybe non-values that have got gotten pa passed down through the generations, they all influence us in one way or an or another. Even if we don't, even if we aren't aware of it. So on the one hand, it pays to to become aware of it as best as possible to see. Well, why do I think the way that I think? Why do I make the like? What assumptions am, am I making? And then how does that influence my life um, and and the way I interact with the world? So. Um, one of the the big critiques that uh, Castrop has is of physicalism, as he calls it. Uh, we usually we've usually used the word like materialism, um, but this view of of reality as fundamentally physical. <clears throat> and of course, in the previous show that we did, we touched on some of the reasons why that's a um, why that is like a bad idea. It doesn't seem to be true, because um, maybe just to, to get into one of the criticisms of, of physicalism that Kastrup gives, and it's pretty similar to ones we've given on the show before, is that like uh, matter, when when thought of as uh, as physical, is a mental abstraction. And what do we, well, what does that mean? What's a, a mental abstraction? Well, like we, if you think about the the daily life of a scientist, what they do is they observe something. They they are experiencing some phenomenon and trying to categorize it and trying to figure it out. So they've got these experiences of the world that are ordered in a particular way. Like things seem to happen in this ordered way. It's like that's how all all like the the entire history of science has developed is people discovering um, like regularities in in nature and things that happen in ways that can be um, predicted and described often mathematically. So you see you have this stuff in the world that you that you're observing and you have like these these objects, physical objects that uh, or. We'll leave the word out for a minute for now. Not physical, just objects. You have these objects describe or that interact and behave in certain ways, and when looked at with this mindset, with this scientific mindset, you discover that these things can be measured. For instance, and like if you, if you look at physics, physics is 
primarily mathematical. It's describing the mathematical relations and interactions of these things. So uh, you, gravity, you can describe gravity in, a, in, a, in a, an equation that, um, that maps to reality, that predicts, and it describes like events that have been observed and that happened. And, and you find this everywhere, whether it's electromagnetism or even down to like quantum mechanics or um, you know, momentum and flight. and All these things can be described mathematically. So now you have this stuff that behaves according to these mathematical rules. And um, and uh, and other values like like the values of mass and like the values of momentum. Like so, not necessarily a um, a formula, but just a single value, like a number. And you can have you know, like you can have a complete like or as close as complete as we're able description of reality in math, like written down on paper. So the idea that matter is all that exists is essentially holding up that piece of paper with all those you know mathematical descriptions and all the possible values and saying that is reality. Um, that is what matter is. So the the idea of matter as um, as a stuff that can be essentially and completely described in terms of like values and like mathematical relations, that is an abstraction because it is like it is, it has been separated out from our experience and reduced to a to um, well to mathematics and to this like this narrow field of of reason of rationality, and then um, the like. So the the ontological statement, the state statement about the nature of being that that entails for some um, people is the like the doctrine of materialism or phys physicalism that that is all there is to reality is that abstract um, description of matter. So matter is only the, the the numbers, the math, the the mathematical interactions, and what we actually experience about it, like the you know shape, color, and pressure, and all, all of these all of these senses and, and like sight, like the images that we have, all of those things aren't really important. Those are just kind of byproducts of the real thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the oddity about that and why it doesn't really work is that, well, it started from perception. It started from an actual experience. And so to reduce that, ex to reduce that experience to something that was um, like, that was born within that experience seems like, you know, there's something very wrong going on there. It's like, actually, no, you had the experience of it. There's something fundamental about the experience that can, can then be described using these narrow fields, like using mathematics and physics, which are obviously important and obviously have something like something to do with the the nature of those the the things that you are perceiving. Um, but there's seems to be more to it than that. For instance, you know, there's the the I, the the fact that you are experiencing and able to experience those things in the first place. From a from a mathematical description of of reality, there's nothing in that math that can even like point to or suggest like the even the idea of uh, of experience of of consciousness of of perception. It's like that is that is something that can only be experienced. Um, like a, a complete description of it can even a complete description of it can only be experienced. Mm -hmm. Like it can't exist on its own in some in some way. It's just this it's this abstraction that has um, been like force fit and into like a complete description of reality, but that complete description is like this this segment of reality that can't possibly describe, um, you know, what even led to those observations and those and the, those reasonable and rational conclusions in the first place. So uh, Castrop um, tries to make a lot of distinctions between the relationship between uh, mind and matter, and uh, like you said earlier in the. In the description, Corey, there is, you know, 
our consciousness, our awareness is, uh, some people think, is, is the very substratum, the very uh, basis for which everything can be perceived or represented, uh, including physical matter. So um, we're just getting our, our feet kind of wet uh, with, with his terminology, but there, there are a lot of important distinctions that he's setting up for us in terminology that, that at least to myself, is quite new. Um, so one of those terms, because uh, I think we'll be, we'll be repeating it again here as we, as we describe some of his material, um, and, and you'll hear it in context so that uh, it, with repetition it's going gonna, it's gonna to hopefully sink in a little bit. Um, but Kastrup uses the term idealism, which is the attempt to explain matter in terms of the mind. And I think that's partially what you were getting at, uh, Harrison, is that uh, there, is this, um, there is this way of viewing reality through... Uh, through what it is, through conceiving of what the mind is. Um, and I think something else you were getting at was something that, uh, it, it's actually a pretty famous term, he didn't coin it, uh, the hard problem of consciousness. So I wanted to read a little bit of a description of, of what that is exactly, because I, I think that that's a, a kind of a, uh, um, a way a way from which to uh, view a lot of the distinctions that uh, Kashyap is trying to make uh, in, his, in his book. Um, this is from um, a site called Scholarpedia. The, the hard problem of consciousness is the problem of explaining the relationship between physical phenomena, such as brain processes and experience. Uh, for example, phenomenal consciousness or mental states, events, with phenomenal qualities. Why are physical processes ever accompanied by experience? And why does a given physical process generate the specific experience it does? Why an experience of red rather than green, for example? So um, I think to help understand this, uh, this hard problem of, of consciousness, uh, we might also compare it to what an easy problem of consciousness might be. Uh, the hard problem contrasts with so-called easy problems, such as explaining how the brain integrates information, categorizes and discriminates environmental stimuli, or focuses attention. Such phenomenon are functionally definable. So um, if you've ever read anything on, um, on neuroscience or or, uh, or have heard any of our shows on psychopathy or uh, have ever studied the brain in, in any amount of detail and in even a very basic detail, there are some processes that we can ascribe to uh, the biological workings of certain parts of the brain, um, certain associations, certain things we know have a connection. Uh, so that, that's the easy problem of consciousness. Uh, to continue... Roughly put, they are definable in terms of what they allow a subject to do. So, for example, if mechanisms that explain how the brain integrates information are discovered, then the first of the easy problems listed would be solved. The same point applies to all other easy problems. They concern specifying mechanisms that explain how functions are performed. For the easy problems, 
Once the relevant mechanisms are well understood, there is little or no explanatory work left to do. Experience does not seem to fit this explanatory model, though some reductionists argue that on reflection it does. Although experience is associated with a variety of functions, explaining how those functions are performed would still seem to leave important questions unanswered. We would still want to know why their performance is accompanied by experience, and why this or that kind of experience rather than of another kind. So for example, when we find something that plays the causal role of pain, something that is caused by nerve stimulation and that causes recoil and avoidance, we can still ask why the particular experience of hurting, as opposed to, say, itching, is associated with that role. Such problems are hard problems. So um, maybe that might be, you know, if you want to comment on that as a, as a jumping off point, uh, those hard problems versus the, um, or rather those easy problems in, in consciousness distinction to the hard problems, how it is that, uh, that there are these more subjective perceptions that can't be explained necessarily by the physical, well-known, uh, biological mechanisms of the brain or the mind. <clears throat> okay, so just uh, a couple things came to my mind when you're talking about the hard problems and the easy problems. Um, one, I was thinking specifically in terms of the, the hard problem of consciousness, there seems to be a couple of different ways that you can approach the problem. Cash-ups is the most novel and interesting one that I've, I've seen, but just to start with the, the more mainstream uh, ways of approaching it. One is to say that the problem of explaining conscious subjective experience in terms of physical reality is a problem, a hard problem, but one that we can solve at some point in time once we have the proper mathematical models once science has run its course. Basically, the idea that, yes, it's a, it's a problem that we can't solve now, but at some point we'll be able to solve it in terms of you know, physical reality. And another one is to say that it's not a hard problem at all because it, consciousness doesn't exist. There is no problem. The problem itself is an illusion. And I think, you know, that one you can just categorically state is absurd, but it is also illustrative of how uh, just how degrading, I guess, some of these beliefs can be. You know, if you think that experience itself doesn't exist, then what is your experience? What is other people's experience? What's your you know, experience how of do that you, idea? Yeah, when, when you think about uh, another human being and you look at them as though they their experience doesn't exist and they don't matter, then where where are uh, where is human dignity in that? You know, I mean, that's just a practical consideration. But at the same time, when you think about your the the people that you love, you know, and hold dear, doesn't such a uh, a sentiment seem like an assault on on them? You know, that their experience doesn't matter; they're just unconscious robots. Versus any other, you know, more, you know. Uh, uh, something more valuable, some uh, some way of seeing people that's more valuable. But not only are is everyone else a robot, so are you. Yeah. So the, like, that's getting back to that first quote that I read from the book about why why these things are important. Because if you truly believe that, well, first first of all, you can't truly believe that because on some level you are experiencing and you're aware that you're experiencing. Like even if you're 
experiencing you're reading a book by like Richard Dawkins or some something and they're con tr convincing you that you don't exist like your consciousness doesn't exist or something or that the you know reality is reducible to the, these very like simplistic and abstract ideas but if you think about how that might affect yourself like on the emotional level in your interactions with others well if 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 you're trying to convince yourself on some level that you essentially don't exist well that can that can only lead to like nihilism of various kinds or like the expressions of nihilism like things won't matter you won't be able to find you won't be able to find meaning in your life because the meaning in your life is that you're worthless and and basically might not even exist or you might be the only thing that exists and and like everything is just this confusing mass of like 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 the world is just this solipsistic hallucination or something like that it's like there's there's no uh there's no order that that you can bring to the world and your and your interaction with the world and your interaction with other people when you've got this when you've got this idea that is so um like anti-world you know and 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 like anti-you and anti-other people it's like anti-human anti-human and more than that and and less than that it's like that nothing really exists nothing is 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 real in some sense um so that's I, that's where i think these these things go and i think that that you know that progression of the last 300 years or so of how these ideas have developed i think that uh, that has reached this point in our culture today where that's the reason why there's um why there are so many problems um like um mental health problems like depression and suicide and just this this enemy and this lack of meaning it's like um it, it may come in cycles and it may it may not be like just the result of those 300 years there may be specific things that have happened uh that are contributing and there probably are like in just the last generation but they all contribute and they they all play their they they all play their part in like the creation of this of this lack of understanding and this lack of meaning and this lack of seeing the world as a place of meaning but getting back to the hard problem of consciousness it's um like Castrop and others like uh David Ray Griffin would argue that it's really it's not a problem in the thing in in the sense that the philosophers that think about it think it's a problem because it's based on an assumption and it's based on a what they call like a category error so you're saying oh well what you're essentially asking is how can something um that has experience come out of something that we know doesn't have experience and well the the problem there is that we don't know that that something doesn't have experience we don't even know that that something generates consciousness it's it's the it's an assumption that that, that is built into the question that the, the the brain must somehow produce consciousness well what if it doesn't you know what Castrop, for instance is saying well what it's what if it's the other way around what if like the the experience and consciousness is fundamental and the the brain like the physical is just an expression of that consciousness somehow an experience of consciousness that's the way we perceive the like the excitations of the um like the of, of that which experiences that's how castro puts it in the book like the you know the field of consciousness or experience you can look at it from a from the other angle and when you look at it from the other angle the question disappears because you get rid of those assumptions and that like that assumption the category error is is like mixing up these levels of abstraction as as castro puts it so you've got like this like the, the one like the immediate sense of experience that you have and then from that you abstract that that there is such a thing as matter that exists independent and um independent of your experience and that is completely described as this mindless like material stuff that in itself in itself is an abstraction so you're saying how can how can what we experience be the result and and the effect of 
something of this matter that we have like abstracted from our experience. And so what Gastrop's saying is like, you can't do that. It's like, you have to, you have to apply on the, on the same level of abstraction. So like the, the easy questions are the questions that you um, deal with on the same level of, of abstraction. So, um, so what's going on in the brain? Oh, what does that brain correlated with? You know, how, how does, how does one neuron, you know, you know, affect these other neurons and, you know, what's the, what are the pathways and, and like all these things that we can, you know, seemingly just observe and answer questions like in that domain. It's like, well, it, it is a domain. It's like, well, how, how do we explain things in this limited sphere? So if we limit things to material, uh, to matter, to the material realm, well, we can exp explain material things in terms of other material things because it seems to be this coherent system. But what the nature is of that coherent system we don't know and we can't explain and and we'd be quite arrogant to to assume that we have all the answers and that's pretty much like the you know the, the history of this of this kind of philosophy is this arrogance to say oh well we we know what all that is you know that is that is matter and we and this here's what we've described matter as and, and that's everything but the, i i really liked uh Kastrup describes it as like a, you imagine a painter who paints this picture, a self-portrait, and then after he's done, he just points at it and says, I'm the portrait. That's basically what these scientists have been doing. And it seems, it kind of reeks like like desperation, too, because it's like there's no other answer out there. Mm -hmm. It's like this is the only thing that we have at this point in time that's that makes sense for whatever reason there's historical reasons for that but it seems like this despair of you know it's it's all oh, it seems like a mental illness in some way some some sort of disturbance and you know in the in the psyche that just grabs onto this portrait that's created of of nature of of physical reality and just clings onto it like there's no, because there's no other there's just there's you know there's no other rock in the in the stream to to you know to hold on to to you know prevent yourself from being torn downstream. Mm -hmm. But um, another thing that I thought was interesting, like you were saying about the correlations between brain activity and experience, and Kastrup points out that that is also can be seen as evidence that consciousness exists in matter. Because that is our personal experience. You know, there's only two real ways that we know of, of experience existing. You know, it's our personal experience and our, you know, the theories of minds of other people, uh, you know, based upon our personal experience and our growth of awareness of like, of, you know, an empathy of what other people are like. And, and then the actual neural substrate that when you peel back all the layers of the onion, that you can see that this, this is correlated with, a certain emotion or a certain, you know, you know, if this hardware is correlated with this certain feature of the human personality, you damage this hardware and that's, that's damaged. And you have to, you have to accept that. Yes. You know, consciousness does not, isn't in and of itself the, uh, you can't as a human being just pretend that the universe is a different way. You have to live by these physical laws and these physical laws are best described in terms of, you know, this kind of physical science, you know, just nat natural science, being able to investigate these periodic rhythms, periodic, you know, the laws of nature, so to speak. But at the same time, that, that way of viewing the world doesn't work when you take it out of that and try and start applying it like, you know, every, you know, a man who sees a, or has a hammer to, to a man who has a hammer, everything is a nail. 
You know, it's, it's the similar with, you know, like Marxism. So I've got this theory about economics. Now everything is economics. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Darwinism. I've got this theory about natural se- selection. So now everything is natural selection from, you know, it's just this way of viewing the world that takes religious instinct and without actual religious thought, religious philosophy, substitute it, you know, because the quote is nature abhors a vacuum, right? It's like instead of just leaving the mind to itself and thinking in terms of abstract, you know, philosophical concepts about, you know, the nature of the universe and, you know, the all of these things that Kastrup is talking about, just thinking about them and just in their own logical way, they, it's uh, all of these, this materialism just gets in and just gums up all the gears, for lack of a better way of saying Mm it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it just reminded me of another thing that Kastrup says kind of in in support of his whole idea, and that is that we're all kind of um, dissociated... uh, um, Alters. uh, Alters, yeah, Yeah. which is a a funny way of putting it. An an alter being, um, you know, someone with a split personality... Uh, who has these alters or multiple personalities? Um, you know, I, I think he has a bit of sense of humor there. But um, well, at the same time, he's totally serious. Yeah. But he's totally serious. Mm-hmm. And his point was that um, that consciousness being this kind of um, uh, larger thing in, in which in which everything exists. Uh, we are we are alters or or um, split offs of consciousness, and uh, and I think the implication was that it's it's through our own understanding of our own minds as as the uh, the interface with larger consciousness with the, with the cosmic with others that um, that we're able to. Uh, I think even perceive and, and get to a greater understanding of the fact that uh, physicalism and materialism ain't all there is, mm-hmm. and that you know all of the laws that we observe in science are observed uh, through the mind, and and can even are even subject to change um, by mere fact of being an observer of certain phenomena. So uh, that was an interesting. Um, kind of way of looking at things and, and opened up my uh, my own sort of thinking on it a little bit in addition to the uh, the uh, cosmic uh, panpsychism mm-hmm. idea which which maybe we can get into a little bit at some point as well yeah well I, I think that's that's actually so far in the book I think that's been the coolest part of it like the coolest idea is this idea of like individualized consciousness as as a, like a split-off, dissociated alter of a larger, all-encompassing um, consciousness, and of course, so he's got several lines of argumentation to to hold it all together. But the like the basic idea being that the the universe like must be on some level, you know, one universe must be a unity, um, and this um, like gels with certain interpretations of quantum mechanics of the of the world as one entangled system, you know, the, as the the universe itself as the closed system. And that, uh, like the quantum equations, will only work on a closed system, and so, so you, so you have to look at the world as a unified, like one thing, whatever that is. And so, like the, you'll have quantum physicists who say, oh well, that's the quantum field, or 
um, you know, M-brain theorists, you know, saying it's the whatever whatever a brain is. <laughs> and then, but uh, Kastrup saying, well, what if those those objects of of thought that these physicists are and and theorists are thinking about what if that one thing is universal consciousness it's like well then how how do we explain the fact that um that like the strong intuition that we all have that we are inhabiting one world with other um, beings with other things with their own experiences it's like how does that how, how do we gel that how do we make that all fit it's that it's that well there is a phenomenon that we're aware of within consciousness, you know, within our own minds, within other minds, and that is dissociation. And it's not, um, and, and it applies to everyone. Like dissociation applies to everyone, not just in the extreme cases of like DID, dissociative identity per- disorder, where or used to be called MPD, multiple personality, where you actually have different, like unique personalities within one one consciousness unit. Um, well, just to, as an aside, I think that's interesting. I, I, I like that approach because it's it's using the same pro- approach that like the intelligent design people use, and that you know Darwin himself used, which is looking to actual known phenomena, actual known causes for uh, for uh, like uh, a different, you know, uh, for for something that you're trying to find the answer for. So it's like, okay, well, what are the possible explanations for this? Well, let's look at the things that we already know, or that we already have some experience of. So in the intelligent design case, it's like, oh, well, we know, we know that minds produce codes, and we don't know of any codes that aren't produced by minds, so it seems reasonable to at least hypothesize that the code in, like, that the DNA code is produced by a mind, or that was. So there's a similar, like, style of, of argumentation going on here. It's like, well, so we have these separated, like, bits, separated, like, units of consciousness that we, you know, seem to be interacting with. Um, whether it's you know our friends and family or our dogs or amoeba, um, there seems to be like these these unified holes that are interacting with each other's with, with each other in some way, and they they all seem to have their own center of of experience, their own subject subjective um, self. Well, what's a what's an analogy that can be made? Well, if you look at the at a one individual like human mind. That mind can fragment, can dissociate into parts. And well, what's dissociation? Well, in dissociation, you can have different alters that that are not aware of each other. Also, you can have alters that are are aware of each, of each other at some times. But but the the there the, the boundaries there are there are boundaries that get put up and that get separated. And it seems it seems very malleable. Like the 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 experience of consciousness and identity, like on that level, seems malleable. Well, it is malleable just from our own experience, and there are dissociated parts even in like normal psychology where it's it, it can be just something that you haven't thought about, but that's still influencing you, or something that you're not consciously aware of that's influencing you. And we talked about this in first sight, our discussions on first sight about the all of the unconscious um, like mentation or cognition or or feeling um, that goes on, or motivations that influence our behaviors um, in ways that we're not consciously aware of. Um, all these concepts and and experiences are related and um and that dissociative model is a, a really clever way of looking at it you've got one like universal consciousness that splits into just these like this multiplicity of of individual units that are part of the whole but but they're but with boundaries around them and uh like 
I think Castrop might say that those boundaries are like our physical bodies. It's like that's how we perceive those boundaries. It's like uh, like I'm a dissociate. We're we're same part. We're we're all parts of the same dissociated whole. But our experience of each other is our experience of those of those dissociated boundaries, and that that's what gives the the appearance of of like of separation. So it's it's like a it's a real separation on the one hand, but on a on a higher level, there's a there's a, a, a connection that. Uh, that is like operative and that like there's even like an analogy to make, to be made in like quantum mechanics and i you know i always i don't like qu- talking about quantum mechanics because mm-hmm. i'm not a physicist and so i i'm always you know afraid that i'm going to say something stupid which is inevitable but it's like the there's that that's a similar sort of thing going on when you look at quantum mechanics where there's there's this um like well first of all like i said in in that you know at least one interpretation of quantum mechanics the universe itself is a is is a, a unified like irreducible like entangled whole uh, like uh, one thing and the like the interactions among any of the of the parts in that closed system are they're all influencing each other all the time so it's this like interactive um um in, interactive like related relative relativistic but not in the einstein sense um like universe where everything influences and and affects everything else so you've got on the one hand everything's connected and influencing um everything else but on the other hand you have any individualized part that can be that can be analyzed as uh as a as a whole in in and of itself like a part of the whole and um, so you know, one of those parts will be the system, and one of those parts will be the the measurement device, and they're interacting in such a way, but they're also interacting with everything else. Um, at least that's my understanding of one interpretation of quantum mechanics. So any of the physicists can always <laughs> correct me or tell me I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, so that, I just think that's idea. That idea is cool. And I also wanted to touch on the 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 idea of dissociation as being kind of a model for how the universe exists, because when you first you read it and you you're first you get the sense that you know this because the model exists to explain a, a very pathological condition that is you know rooted in trauma so yeah. <laughs> so the problem so i mean that right there you're you're like oh you know you're starting to think about the universe in terms of like you know what did they do to you universe <laughs> but uh but really the 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 real value of what he uh shows in in that chapter or in the chapters that he discusses the dissociative model is that it is possible that that is as a fact it does that does exist there are different you know you can dissociate and have multiple consciousness multiple forms of consciousness in one you know unified quote unquote consciousness so then you know you 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 show empirically that that is possible and so then you can you now you've established the grounds that you can extrapolate that out and beyond and when you do and you remove the pathological you know veneer that surrounds did then you can see that you know it's it's not human mind that's dissociating you're talking about a, a cosmic mind and then when you like you were saying Harrison about just all of the different ways that the universe manifests all the all the matter all of the quarks and protons and everything you 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 find a place for all of those things within a creative aspect of of a mind that encompasses all of creation and so it's like, why do these things exist? Well, it's like, you know, why not? Why do humans, why do, with, with our minds, why do we do things? We do things, I mean, there's a 
million different reasons why we do things. But a lot of the times it can be traced back to curiosity, to learning, to just, you know, tinkering with things. In, in our creative capacity as conscious subjects, we create things. I mean, we, we create all, just the amount of, of gadgets that have emerged in the last 20 years is just a drop in the bucket in terms of, you know, the existence of the entire universe. And when you think about the entire universe of existing within a mind and, you know, all of these different dissociated parts of that mind, you get an idea of the kind of creativity that would help explain things like the fine-tuning problem, why the universe seems to exist in such a perfect way that life, um, that life is even possible. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the reason that we have... Uh, different life forms, all these different um, genetically coded uh, beings that are, you know, geared towards this or that is because this mind and all of its, you know, dissociated parts want to manifest. That's their goal. That's, they, you know, the parts of mind wants to manifest in the cosmos, in the material world, in order to do something to learn to you know just to play around you know to to know what it's like to be a bat or to know what it's like to be a squirrel or what it's like to be a human i mean cuz that's one of the prob- that's one of the things that he brings up in the book quite a bit is that when you're talking about experience you're always talking about what it's like to be something and as humans, you know, we have such a desire to know what it's like to be this, or we have so much curiosity in, in, in terms of, you know, reading about foreign lands, you know, reading about the stars, reading about any, you know, we always want to know what it's like, what would it be like to be rich? Or, you know, you, what's it like to be poor? You know, well, what if the, the cosmic mind has a similar sort of uh, desire. What if at some, in some way, that's just, that's why the universe exists. You know, you know, Corey, when, when you were saying all that and you evoked creation, I was thinking about the legend of the fall. I was thinking about, uh, Adam and Eve as these dissociated, uh, fallen, um, people or, or, uh, or representative or mythologic or uh, kind of representations of early man or some aspect of man that, um, that lost uh, part of their connection to a, a cosmic awareness or, or cosmic mind. Mm-hmm. And that um, part of the, it, the significance of that story, uh, as we, as we uh, look at where we are today, is the, uh, the grappling, the striving towards regaining whatever awareness it was that they had prior to their fall. And uh, it seems to me, since everything more or less exists in the mind, so to say, and we can make distinctions about that, but, mm-hmm. but let's say that for, for uh, all intents and purposes, that it's, it's the striving to understand what the mind is, what we're capable of um, connecting to, uh, in in using our imaginations, uh, in in uh, trying out all these different hypotheses uh, and probabilities, and combining it with what we know through science and what we're now coming to understand about where neo Darwinism fails, you know, what is our place? Uh, what is a true evolution? If if neo Darwinism was incorrect, and in fact, you know, there was some uh, element of intelligent design that went into into br- putting us together. Uh, what was 
what was the purpose for that design? And, um, and, and it's, it's in the journey, I think, of looking at all those things uh, that we come closer to um, approaching, hopefully, the road to uh, getting back to where we were before the fall. I mean, that, that sounds kind of nice and uh, prosaic, uh, uh, but uh, that's what comes to mind. There is no pun intended. You know, this, is, this journey in understanding our, our connection to a cosmic mind or, or information field um, or how it is that we are these kind of alters or dissociated beings that, that, um, that have some limitation... You know, this is this is the work. Just like getting healthy or working out, it's a painful. Uh, it's a kind of. It's a work in progress. You don't. You know. You don't gain strength. You know, to use a, a a very materialist analogy, by sitting on a couch. You do it by exercising. So, is there a faculty for the mind, for the growth of the mind, for the growth of a connection to a a cosmic mind? that comes in contemplating these very questions mm. and ideas. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to, you brought up that, that that brought to mind the fall for you. And uh, like to me, it brought up um, a similar idea. All the, all the myths about the, like the God that is dismembered and, um, and, and like creation somehow like forms out of the dismembered members of the, like the dismembered God. And uh, like, I think, Orion is one, maybe maybe it's Osiris, but I get my Egyptian gods mixed up. But this idea of like the 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 divine, you know, ultimate being that then like gets split up into parts, um, and then and creation comes forth out of those parts, or something, you know, some kind of creation comes forth out of those parts. That's the, that I think is like a good mythological representation of this like dissociation of consciousness too. Um, just this idea, like um, of the of the, the universal whole splitting up into into multiple parts. Of course, you know, with uh, with that myth, it's probably I think it's true on multiple levels. Um, if this you know dissociative thing is true, it's true on that level. It's also probably true on the level of um, you know the origin of of the, like, the the representations of certain gods as being originally like uh, cometary encounters, where you know you like the ancients saw. These like violent and catastrophic and um, like encounters with comets that you know came much closer like uh, to well actually interacted with Earth and its atmosphere and the people on it and did a lot of destruction um, more than we have any reference to now like the Younger Dryas you know twelve thousand years ago but the because uh, uh, so true on the level of there there were actual events that. Um, well, I'll just give a bit of the background. It's probable, you know, based on a lot of research researchers, that um, um, in ancient times there were many encounters with comets, and so there was this like really spectacular display in the sky of this comet, and those comets were viewed as gods and named after god or named as gods, and that the interactions and the the things view, like view uh, viewable in the heavens were then like um, encoded in mythological form. So the breakup of uh, of a god into many parts was could have been and seems to have been um, like uh, th that image seems to have found its place or found its origin in like the breakup of a, of a massive comet and maybe the just des the destruction that it caused and then the the new the new birth the new life that came out of that destruction and so um, 
So I think there are several ways of looking at it, but they all kind of relate because that experience, like that experience of like a, a massive, um, like heavenly body undergoing this spectacular, like like bright display of of destruction and and um, well dismemberment, and then the destruction caused on you know parts of the earth and the catastrophe and like the the just the the amount of death and and struggle and suffering that that caused, and then the the the, the effort that humanity must have gone through to reestablish itself to 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 reform itself. Um, all of the emotions and like just the narrative of that is like it in 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 and of itself is a perfect metaphor i think of this like more cosmic metaphysical process it's like here is the here is like the ultimate universal consciousness that undergoes um like uh like a dissection of itself to 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 enter the world that we experience uh, as the world of of suffering of like pain of limitation of all of the the struggles that we go through in our lives and then the 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 building and then building out of that something using like the all of the evils of the world and all the all of the evils of experience to then create something better and good out of that to to then like reconnect to like with the example of the fall to get closer and to make those connections again with higher levels of consciousness and and higher levels of connection between those dissociative dissociative parts it's like that that seems like a really good story mm. you know on no matter how you look at it mm. And it can apply on the so it, it can apply on the the just the you know the earthly historical level, the metaphysical cosmic level, but also like in the, on the in the individual. And this is it's also in the 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 Christian story of you know the the God that becomes a man to enter the world of suffering and to to go through to experience it all, and and to 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 then ascend to reascend to to the that original place of divinity. Um, with the with the, with the experience, um, you know, in his pocket, essentially, you know, a, a horrible experience. Just like that—that's what life is. Life is a, a horrible experience. It's also a beautiful experience. It's both, but it can it, it can go it can you know those scales can be tilted one way or the other. Um, and in any given life, you know, any given life, you can have you know the the extremes. And so in and and in one that that whole structure can apply to any individual too. It's like, like you gave the the extreme example of of actual dissociative identity disorder, or just the just the disintegrations and fragmentations of the human mind that uh, that an encounter with just extreme evil can bring about. Evil in oneself and evil in um, in those around you. It's like that 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 trauma can just destroy a person. And but the 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 beauty in that is that out of those experiences, there is the possibility of rebirth you know of putting together oneself again and of uh, of creating something new and even of uh like leaving aside the the trauma aspect there is just that possibility now of given all the all of those like conditions of the world like here, here's here's the nature of the world and now you know go and do your thing we have now the possibility um looking at it from those terms of seeing the world as a place of like infinite potential and infinite possibilities and of like and and despite our own limitations like but by becoming aware of our own limitations of learning to either utilize or transcend those lim limitations and we don't know what the limits of that process can be how many limitations we can overcome how many how many like um you know 
hacks we can we can put into the like into ourselves in the universe it's like oh well here's what we what we once considered a like uh an over like uh, an obstacle that cannot be overcome it's like just an inherent limitation it's like well if if we can change our perspectives on that that might not become a it might, it might not be a limitation anymore we might be able to 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 overcome that limitation and then so this this view of the world it's it can open up those possibilities and when you're living in a world where where not only is it possible to to actualize any of these different potentials actualize any of these different possibilities but it it can be um, but it is in a certain direction too, because if you just have possibilities and none of them are better than any other possibility, then it's it's just arbitrary. It doesn't matter which choice you make. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter if what happens to you is like is horrible past anything you can imagine, or if it's like unbelievably good. Those have no distinction. There's just A, B, C, D, E, F. You know, on to infinity. It's just each option has its own. Um, has the same weight, but we but we seem to live in a, in a universe where things are weighted, and so part of that process of of all these unlimited possibilities is to find the ones that are most valuable and most important and most meaningful, and then actually bringing that into existence, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the, the, and you can see that as this kind of like divine like universal drama of of you in relation to everything else but also you in relation to like the totality of everything else which you can perceive as as a as god or a cosmic mind or whatever you want mm-hmm. but it's this you're you're placed in the middle of this like it, it's just well i i don't even have the words to describe it because it's just so immense and and uh and like immaculate it's mm-hmm. like it's it, it's like the the grandest story or the like the or the best movie or the best video game but none of those do justice to to the reality of like the of the of, of the universe that we live in and the like the possibilities that are opened up by 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 that by living within this cosmic mind the mm-hmm. like the the facets of which we can't even comprehend comprehend yeah that uh, that reminds me i was reading a book i can't remember the author but he's uh, i think he was a biblical scholar and he was he was discussing he I could just remember the name of the book. I believe it's the creation of the Bible and the Talmud. Surpassing wonder is what it's called. Surpassing wonder, and that's the uh, that those two words. Surpassing wonder is the impression that I'm that I'm picking up because he and he he talks about it in the book. He's a scholar and he's done he's done his research, spent years and years researching these things, and he says um, he just comes right out and says that when you're discussing the, these religious ideas. You can't do it in just this dry, you know, scholarly way. There's when you're talking about it, you just you bubble up and you are exuberant at the at these at with these concepts. And you know, he says, I I will not apologize for that because that is the nature of this of this way of seeing the universe, which in and of itself is you know some side of, some sort of a, you know a practical consideration to keep in mind. Whether you know if you're looking at the universe in ways that brings joy, or you're looking at the universe in ways that brings you know, nihilism and, you know, mm-hmm. self-hatred and just rejection. But yeah, that's, that's what I thought when you were, when you were discussing that. And another thing that I, that I thought was the, this hypothesis theory, this way of seeing the world explains a number of things that are the mainstream physicalist account doesn't. 
And one of them that it explains is, and probably the most important thing, is consciousness, experience, why we have experience. I mean, with, if, you, if you can't explain that in your, your worldview, then you're missing out on, you're losing your life, essentially. You know, like Socrates said, a life uh, not examined is a life not worth living. And if you don't, you know, if you're not examining your experience, if you're not able to account for it, to, to really embrace it in a way that is, you know, that brings human dignity, then there's a problem. And that's another thing that it solves, that this way of seeing the world solves, is the problem of human dignity. Because if you, this, it restores the spark of the divine to human life, but not just human life, to all life, to all of existence. Everything gains a, this kind of a glimmer, a sparkle of creativity and of the love of like a doting creator, <laughs> you know, in some, in some way that there was this, this unbelievable miracle of, that created life, that created the universe, that was before the universe, that, you know, is outside, all-encompassing of the universe. And another is that it takes, you know, intelligent design out of the realm of it was, you know, Jehovah or Yahweh or it was aliens or it was, it's like it, intelligence in general is not uh, specific to a certain uh, theory. You know, the intelligence is just part and parcel of the entire universe. Intelligent design, so therefore you would expect to see intelligent design. It was, it, that would just be a matter of fact, a matter of course. If if uh, the universe ex- is conscious, exists within consciousness to varying degrees, you're going to imagine there's going to be different kinds of consciousness creating th- different things for different purposes, possibly at cross purposes. You know, mm-hmm. you don't know, but you know it it explains a number of different things in a way that is holistic. It you know it brings it it accounts for human dignity. It accounts for the intelligence that you see in the universe, and it doesn't. It also doesn't um, try and it doesn't try and go back to pre, you know, scientific revolution ways of conceiving of God, mm-hmm. which is the biggest problem. Because when Nietzsche, you know, as Jordan Peterson says, Nietzsche proclaimed, you know, God is dead and we have killed him, and you that he was right. That God is dead. You can't. I mean, unfortunately, he's. He's not coming back. There's so many problems. There are so many problems with the uh, Judeo-Christian way of conceiving the universe. And not just that, but real problems that came when humans started confronting the world exactly as it is. And not, you know, and just saying, you know, to hell with it, to hell with whatever, whatever I'm supposed to believe. I just want to know what is out there. And I just want to, and I want to be able to, to predict what's going to happen. I want to be able to, to control our, our fate. We want to be able to create, we want to be able to do, we want to learn everything that we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is, is that when you're doing that, you just are bound to create nihilism because if you just question everything that you're bound to come up to a point of nihilism, you're bound to come to a point of, you know, the dark night of the soul. And it's probably just a part and parcel of the, evolution for be- lack of a better word of of uh you know of a, a group of people of a species that embarks on such a thing you're going to you know question all of your most cherished beliefs you're you're going to have to toss away a lot of the things that you hoped were true and for a lot of people who are you know like materialists or atheists i think you know a lot of them um you know if for, you know, years, years ago, and even probably still today, that they still believe that they are committing themselves to the truth. 
and it, it, that they can, you know, to the best of their ability, this is the truth. This is all we can prove. Well, it's not true. You know, there's there's a number of problems with it. One, like you know, for the for one problem is that um, the entire dichotomy of mind and matter that was created in order to pursue this uh, the scientific agenda without the you know without the church you know crushing come you know crushing you because you can't question all these all these problems you're like okay so church you get to keep mind and we're going to we'll take the matter you know well that that was problematic it it left like Castro points out it left a huge rift in our ability to understand the world because as we've said before, uh, mind and matter are not a dichotomy. Like mind and matter are not hot and cold. Mind and matter are not life and death. Mind and matter are not, you know, success and failure. Mind and matter, mind is like the, the parent of matter, essentially, because matter is an abstract concept. So it can't, you can't use the abstract concept of matter to explain mind because it just it doesn't work like that. As Castro points out, there's an epistemic symmetry that exists between dichotomies. They have to be part of, you know, in order to, you know, they have to basically pass a, a test. You know, if, if I can see that this person is alive, then I know that they're not dead. You know, that's, that's it. And the problem is, is that mind and matter don't work that way. There's, there's extra inferential steps that you have to take in order to understand mind and matter. So if I, you know, I feel a negative emotion, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean that there's a negative, uh, electron. You know what I mean? You just can't, they don't work. They don't work like that. Experience and, and matter don't exist in the same realm of, of epistemic symmetry. And so once you, once you do away with that, then you're freed, like we've been discussing, to, to conceptualize of the universe in a way that matter is put back into the place where it belongs and where it matters. <laughs> I saw, Harrison, I saw you. You're like, say it. Say it. Go ahead. Well, I was actually going to say something else, but I won't because it would be totally un-PC. Um, but, um, say it. No, no, I refuse. Um, but I think this is a good point to just point out, um, like uh, we were talking a bit earlier, uh, you and me, Corey, about about this, about Castro's book. And just to make clear that uh, like, uh, there, there are definitely things in the book that I don't agree with. And um, like some arguments that I don't think are you know are quite as as well argued as, as they could be, and some things that I don't agree with. But but um, like a lot of the conclusions that he comes to are things that I can pretty much get behind. But some of the ways that he gets there, I'm not quite sure about. So maybe just really quickly, I'm gonna go through a couple of them. We might do another show at some point and uh, and look more deeply at this. But like one, because you mentioned like this v way of looking at the world, opening up like uh, a new understanding of how we might conceptualize intelligent design, for instance. One uh, like downside of, of the book, I think, is that like at a few points, um, uh, at a few points, Castrop like kind of like presupposes just the, the presupposes like neo-Darwinism as like an accurate description of of evolution and kind of uses some evolutionary arguments to make some points and um, and well I don't think that's I don't think that's the like a the best way of going about it just because I don't I don't think those arguments like actually work I don't think you can presuppose a neo-Darwinian view of the world especially because neo-Darwinism like as a as it has become and as it is now is an ex like an exemplification of the materialist philosophy that has that is like a kind of um, strangled science and philosophy to one degree or another for the last several hundred years. 
So uh, just to keep that in mind, and it may be because, like he like he points out in at various points in the book, like all of these all of these chapters were originally papers that he had published in peer-reviewed journals. And so, in you know, at one point he says he includes in a note, oh well, you know, keep in mind I was writing this for this journal, so I, I was open about this question whether it was one or the other. I do think it's one and not the other, but you know, for the purposes of this journal, I couldn't say that explicitly. So it could be that um, you know he's using it as an argumentation, like. Like, like a rhetorical point, it's like, oh well, look what we can conclude from even the Darwinian perspective. I'm not sure if he, if that's his actual mindset or not, um, but regardless, um, like there are some points that he makes based on like evolutionary arguments that I don't think um, are valid. Um, like I said, we can get into those maybe at another time. But um, but I do think that like ironically or not, that the the final picture he comes to actually creates a much better ground for something like intelligent design than. Um, you know, than neo-Darwinism. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But one other thing, um, or maybe two other things, um, that I have issue with is kind of like a, a basic, like epistemolo epistemological starting point, and also what he says about like pan, pan experientialism or panpsychism. So when he's going through the various options, like physicalism, um, like physicalism, there's no um, like the, the the absolute basic bits of the universe, basic stuff of the universe is is matter. It is inanimate, um, you know, describable by, you know, these mathematical properties and values, and um, there's no consciousness in it. There's no experience in it. Um, but he gives another example, and that's panpsychism. So, like, a, a, like panpsychists or micro-experientialists micro or micro-psychists, like, there's various terminologies for these, but the, all being the idea that um, there are some, like, ultimate and, like, small bits of, of matter that do have experience either some or all of them. So like the, the pan-experientialists, like David Ray Griffin, would say that all subatomic particles have some degree of experience. <clears throat> um, other, others would say, oh, well, only some, only some ultimate bits have experience. And um, um, Castro himself, he, he gives the break-off point as being um, like organisms, so like from single-celled organisms up. Essentially, like they have, they have some level of experience. Those are the dissociative parts, the dissociated parts. But what we perceive as, like, um, as the the chemical world, um, from like from well, physical and chemical, from subatomic up to like molecules, those don't have experience. Those are like what he calls mind at large. That is like the the field of consciousness that hasn't that 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 are basically expressions of thoughts of the universal mind, but the, themselves are not dissociative parts of the of the universal mind that um, we just experience them so they're kind of um, like just experiences of of thoughts which are excitations of that which experiences but um, I don't think that's a necessary step um, you know who knows you know maybe he's right I but I'm uh, at, at least at this point I, th I I do think that um, that well I think that pan experientialism um, which he points out there's a problem with. So there's the problem with physicalism as the hard problem of consciousness, which comes about because of this, this false dichotomy bet between mind and matter. But there's also a problem with pan-experientialism, the idea that every little bit has some degree of consciousness, that, okay, so you've got all of these like atoms that have their own experience. So you put them together in some way, like you just jam them all together into the form of a, of like a, a tree or a, or a rock or a human, and just somehow some of those will be conscious and some won't, or maybe all of them are. Um, but there's, it, 
it's just it seems arbitrary it's like well how do those things all combine in such a way as to produce like a, a higher grade of consciousness um there's no there's no good explanation for that i think he calls it like the subject combination problem it's it's another problem in philosophy um a problem with these systems in particular but i think that that problem would disappear if you just accepted the like the holistic view and basically viewed it as like the, there's this top down dissociation but there's also a bottom up process going on too because um like one thing that i haven't seen him address yet um, and i haven't finished the book but so at one point he does say that he thinks that uh, like microorganisms like single-celled organisms do have their own kind of center of consciousness they are themselves a dissociated part because they act as you know their own being essentially and uh, and and even when we observe them, they do seem to act like responsively. They they seem to have an, like an intrinsic, like um, um, like knowledge of or experience of like the the nature of interacting with the world. And like so, they 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 go towards you know food and away from harm and you know all that. It's like they they seem to act like very simple um, beings, just like us, but on a very simple level. And even you know, even single-celled organisms are extremely complex, of course. But, um, but then when you take a human, we are made of like you know billions of cells, but but we only have one center of consciousness. Like the, so, it, um, and, and and so I haven't seen him kind of uh, talk about that distinction. It's like so, how can a single cell exists as its own thing and a multi-celled organism exists as, as as its own thing if each of those cells doesn't have their own existence and if they and if each of those does have their own existence or own experience then um th then you still have the problem well how do they combine to create a a higher form well, well actually you don't have the problem because they they aren't combining to to form a higher consciousness that higher consciousness is a, a is a dissociation of the larger consciousness but it is built out of much, uh, like billions of smaller dissociated parts of that grand consciousness. So it's like we are, there's a top, a top up process going on or a bottom up process going on and a top down process going on. So we are composed of like smaller parts that do contribute to our, to our whole experience. And we are the, like the, dis, the, the top down dissociation of a larger part. So there, there's two directions as opposed to just one. But but still, you, I think you can still reconcile this with the view that everything at its root is is consciousness, because we could be just the like the the combination of of like billions of you know very small um, you know dissociated bits of consciousness. But like that that but our own consciousness is kind of like encapsulating those holes, just as you know our own mind will encapsulate or or you know bracket off the like dissociated parts in our own personalities in our own psyches um there's something on like the what we might call the physical level that's going on too so we have like so when you cut off your arm it's like you are cutting off like a part of your own self which is created to some degree out of consciousness but like there are little bits of yourself that are that are missing now that are gone that are not you're, you're no longer whole in a sense and so there's something i think there is something essential about going down to to those levels and like I said, I, I would even go down further. I, I, I think that you could make an argument that the, 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 that the smallest dissociated parts are subatomic particles, but that, you know, save that for another time. Um, but the, this kind of relates to the, to the last problem I had in the, the epistemic, you know, epistemological thing. So how, how do we know? Like there are various points in the book where, um, especially when, when Kastrup's giving his arguments against like physicalism, 
um, where he brings up um, like the, the the view of several philosophers and and scientists that that are what you could call like an anti-realist position, that um, that all we experience are our 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 own perceptions of reality. We don't actually experience reality itself. All we have to go on are our, our perceptions, and this like this argument goes back to Hume and Locke and Kant, and um, but the problem is I think it's I think it's wrong. Um, I think they're wrong. I don't think that, you know, that doesn't mean I think physicalism is right. I think this is, that actually physicalism and this view of how we know the world are intimately tied. That the reason we have this view of how we know things as being only through our senses is actually, actually comes out of like the same schools of thought and the same lines of thinking that led to materialism in the first place. So, like, some of the conclusions from Kant, and, well, and from, from Hume, um, based on this theory of how we know things, the, of how we come to know things, so that we only have we only have our the images that like are projected on the screen of our consciousness to know anything by, and there like the conclusion of that, and this is this has been uh, like a a symptom of philosophy ever since, is that we therefore can't um, account for and can't um, justify the existence of other things. Um, we can't account for the reality of causation, for instance, because all we see is one thing happening after another thing in our consciousness. There's nothing in, in there's nothing um, um, that uh, like a series of you know time slices will. Uh, there's nothing in that series of time slices that will suggest to us or imply um, the anything about the nature of causation, that there's something inherent about that first thing that actually causes the, the next thing to happen. And, um, and even up to like uh, Santayana, who, who said, uh, well, if we really take, if we really look at this, we can't even, um, we can't even justify like the, the existence to like in any sense of the past or the future. All we're left with is this, this slice of time like uh, these these slices one after the other we can't even we can't we can't justify the like our memories or the or the past or the existence of a past and we can't we can't justify the idea that there's any kind of potential future even um but all of these seem to be vastly like not only counterintuitive but um but um like self-defeating because if we can't justify anything we can't we can't just well we if we can't if we can't justify any of these things, we have no business talking about them um, at all. We have no business talking about well, what's the nature of the world? Because we we can't even um, we have no reason for for thinking that anything exists outside of ourselves, whether it's consciousness or 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 matter or whatever, because the, the because of this this view of uh, of the way in which we perceive and know, and um, but the the where I'm going with this is that there that that view of that 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 epistemology is wrong-headed like i think that Locke and hume made errors when they were doing that and i think the best person that like that identified those errors was whitehead because like he pointed out that even when like so when you when you take that position it's like okay i see i see like this blue field or whatever the, the, you know which is the sky i see this blue sky all i have is my per, is is the perception of that blue sky that's the, and that's the only thing that I can actually know is that I'm experiencing that 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 blueness, but there's something that there's something that's presupposed in that statement, because uh, and and Whitehead finds it like in Hume. Hume says that oh, and I know the blue by my eyes. 
Um, and you know, I feel you know by my by my limbs, and there's there's always something that he's aware of that he doesn't acknowledge, and that is that he is sensing with his sense organs. You know, I am, the, and and no one can no one can escape that. The reason they see a blue sky is because of their eyes. Their eyes are playing some kind of integral, like um, essential part in the in the in the sight in in the the, the sight of the blue. It's through the eyes. It's not as if, like, well, you could go further, and some maybe have, but it doesn't really make much sense to to think, oh, well, all I am is is a screen of consciousness, and my body doesn't exist, and my eyes don't exist. Mm -hmm. It's like what well, the like the the thought that actually gets you there is is the is the acknowledgement that okay, I see with my eyes, but can I trust the like the images that my eyes are causing? There's a, a presupposition that our senses, well, it's called sense perception for a reason. It's because the reason we've gotten, the reason we've, the only reason we've had these philosophies is because of people um, like unconsciously um, or implicitly recognizing that they are experiencing the world through their senses. That is, their consciousness is aware of and is causally affected in some way by the senses of their bodies, by their physical bodies. On some level, they are aware of their physical bodies and the reality in some sense of their bodies. Um, now, what the nature is of the of the bodies, uh, uh, um, we don't know, or or you, you can't say just right off the bat. That's something to then be um, discussed or like you know really looked into. But another thing about about perception um, that uh, that Whitehead says, it's like, well, what is so? What's going on then when we see something? Okay, yeah, we're seeing an image uh, an image of blue using our eyes um, by by means of our eyes. We're, we have an awareness of our eyes as um, as causing, in some sense, that perception. So what Whitehead said is that the you know the basic the basis of perception isn't perception. It's not the the images we see. The basic the the the, the most basic level of perception is the the perception or the the experience of what he calls causal efficacy. You know, we're ex we on the most basic level, we have the experience of the the efficacy of our eyes for doing something, of our ears for doing something. It's like, and, and when you have that, it's like the the experience of causal efficacy is when you're experiencing anything. It's that something is causing that perception. It's like when you have the you can't have a perception of something if there's nothing that you're perceiving. There has to be some nature to the thing that you're perceiving, and of course, so Castro would say the nature of what you perceive is uh, like um, other um, other consciousness or the like the extrinsic appearance of 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 those dissociative alters. But that is that that is something else. You know, you need you need a cause to have an effect. You need something um, causing the perception in order to have the perception. So in that sense, um, that's why I don't I don't necessarily agree with some of the more um, I guess you could say more uh, extreme statements of idealism that Castro makes, because like um, at various points he you know he he'll say something that I think is just totally reasonable, um, which seems to kind of contradict other times when when he'll say something that I perceive as like you know less reasonable, but um, so that's why I say I usually kind of agree with him in the end, but there's just some some ways getting there that I don't necessarily follow or agree with, because it's like um, all you have are your perceptions. Well, what is entailed by the idea of perception? It's like it's that there is a perceiving subject and something that you are perceiving. There is reality on both ends of the spectrum. And using our, high, our higher level 
um, ability of, um, of thinking, we can come to various conclusions about the nature of the things that we're experiencing. Um, like, so the, the, you know, the nature of like, or the idea that, you know, each of the, the people that I interact with are, the, are their own dissociated alters, but they are real in the sense that they, I am actually experiencing them. There's like the, the two sides of that equation are just as important, the, the experiencing subject and the thing that is being experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't think that that's made clear enough um, in Castro. But like, I think Whitehead does a better job of that. But, uh, but like I said, you know, when, it, when it comes down to it at the end, they usually kind of, um, or Castro usually kind of comes to a, a, comes to a point where like our most basic intuitions about the world are justified. Um, but just uh, you know, from his kind of like, uh, ex like, what's the word? Well, extremely idealistic sense, in the sense of mind being everything and, o and the only thing. Right, and that is one of the dangers of idealism, isn't it? Too that you end up kind of skirting the lines of solipsism. You know, there's some solipsistic type uh, attitudes and and that that kind of come along with that. The idea that the the world is all exists in a dream, like that. The, you know that. That uh, that it's all just a dream, or it's all just uh, you know I don't I can't really know the 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 world as it actually is because it's it's you know like you said I'm just a screen of perception. It's just a I'm perception, and then the the world out there is just who knows what it is. I see it's blue sky, but maybe it's maybe it's not. And idealism um, in that way is, and we've discussed that on previous shows that you can you know when you when you're thinking about the world. You know, you really have to be aware of, you know, the, your, your kind of, your presuppositions. And I think that was one of the points of the show, is to really flesh out some of the presuppositions behind idealism, behind physical reality, behind materialism, and to come to an idea of where they all belong, where they all hang in the balance. Because that's, that's like, that's, that's the job of philosophy right there. And, you know, philosophy has its own role in life, just, just as anything else does. That uh, when you're you're doing philosophy, you're just figuring out how things hang together. How does everything kind of hang together in your worldview? You know, whether it's on your personal life or in it's in in the big in the big picture, just in in the most cosmic picture that we've been discussing here, and kind of trying to debug little things, trying to see, well, this doesn't this doesn't seem like it fits. You know, maybe this needs to be tweaked. But you know, the physicalism as a way of viewing the world obviously still has its place. And like like we were talking about before the show, I was like the ground floor is what Castro points out that um, that the the physicalist model accounts for correlations between brain activity and inner life, the fact that we all inhabit the same world, and that the dynamics of the world unfolds independently of you know whatever our wishes and mm. what you know that's it's not just a dream. There's very, I mean, the laws, the law is the law you know, for, for, for whatever reason. And we don't really know. We don't know why. But in this model, you can, you can venture hypotheses as to why the physical world exists the way it does, according to a rational, some rational uh, creation, you know, some, some way of, you know, actually establishing law. Are you, are you still talking about the physicalist like view of these things? I'm or? talking about incorporating, yeah, incorporating the physicalist model into a, a broader uh, idealistic model. Okay. Yeah. So like, uh, so Castrop will, will account for all of those like basic facts using the idealistic model and, so correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong. so what you're saying is that um, there's still a place for like physicalism to some degree, 
like mm -hmm. in the in that limited sphere um or like what, what well, are you actually saying the, about that the existence of all of the uh the observations of science okay. basically that that they're they they uh oh. you know that the observations of science uh clearly they work yeah. you know in on a technical level if you're just looking at it just purely on a technical level without philosophy if you go to work tomorrow you're going to act as though all of these mm -hmm. things work so i'm just on a hardcore common sense level you know i it's um you're it's compatible it's compatible I mean, and it's not just compatible, but I mean, the, the assumptions that go along with it are not compatible, but the fact, the facts in and of themselves of, you know, that, you know, if I'm, if I get in a car crash, um, you know, the sodium azide pellets in my, in my air airbag, uh, compartment are going to the, they're going to get set on fire and the nitrogen is going to be released and the airbags are going to shoot out. And that's just a, you know, People, the, that's chemists, scientists, technicians designed this, and it works. And you know, and it, unless there's a flaw somewhere, but by a law of nature, these they're compelled to, ex, ex, you know, nitrogen is compelled to come yeah. out when fire is, you know, yeah. what, what, however you want to view it, you know, there's you um, within a system. I think that just the, those facts have to be accepted. You know, just the the technical side of of nature has to be accepted because I don't think that you can view the intellect, the mind without the technical. I mean, what else is it doing besides the technical? What else, what else do you work with with a mind besides reality, besides the yeah. material, the technical, if you're crafting, mm -hmm. that's, that's where all the fun is. That's yeah. the challenge. You know, how do I get this to work this way? You have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, like the, the role of philosophy is to, is to, like create a bigger picture in which like well to account for for those facts and to make them make sense mm -hmm. like, and so where philosophy goes wrong is when it um, either can't account for those facts or doesn't account for the account for them very well mm -hmm. it's like so so like the, the advantage of physicalism is that at least it acknowledges those facts but there are there are other facts that it doesn't acknowledge and there are other philosophies that can that can also account for those facts. Um, like so, the like the the good thing about like physicalism is that at least it got us this far, right? It was adequate for the job, um, for for a job. It got a job done. It didn't get all the jobs done, and, and in fact, it it hindered some other jobs from getting done. But you know, it played its role, and you know now it can like it can die a, a pleasant death, and uh, well, it won't be so pleasant. And there will be like other, you know, other philosophies, hopefully, that will, um, that will do just as good a job as, or a better job of accounting for those facts, so that we, so that all, so that the world still makes sense. Essentially, you know, we're still living in an ordered world, and we, and the, the, the most basic, you know, presuppositions and like most basic intuitions about the world are still there, because mm -hmm. otherwise we, you know, we couldn't do anything. Um, but um, that kind of that that different. Um, the different way in which all those you know pieces are fitted, the different picture that they create is is one that um, opens up more possibilities, and like um, and will account for the things that were neglected by specifically by the physicalist view. Um, so I think that's why that's one of the that's the advantage of um, of taking a new a new look at 
um, you know, philosophical systems and um, and looking at the options kind of on the table and and what they do entail and the and the possibilities that open up as a result of them and the, and the problems that can be solved because of them, like the the error the previous errors that can be you know put behind us, um, you know, ideally. Mm -hmm. um, to to you know come to just a, a better picture of the world and therefore uh, um, a, a better you know gives us a better ground from which to to act in the world mm -hmm. and um, op and kind of kind of opens up those those new potential futures that maybe were closed off when we had a more limited um, a, a more limited view of the world and the and the and a more limited philosophy of the nature of things. Yeah, there's a danger between confusing like comfortable thinking with clear thinking, and the physicalist model and the the world that we live in. You know, it's it's comfortable. The whether it's as crazy as it is, you know, for a lot of people, it's still the comfortable way of viewing things. And so that's why we're glad that you tuned in today to hear an uncomfortable <laughs> to hear the uncomfortable uh, philosophy, something that uh, a little more challenging. Um, that's it for us this week. You have a great week. Go ahead and check out the idea of the world. If you haven't already by Bernardo Castro, uh, support him. He's a really, really, uh, in insightful and very interesting philosopher and computer engineer. Thank you for tuning in everybody. See you next time. Yeah. Bye everyone.